You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, Mr. President. Welcome. Please come in. Have a seat. Make yourself comfortable. Thank you so much for joining uh, me today at this early hour. Uh, not that you had a choice, but uh, but today's going to be a pretty intensive briefing session, so I thought we should probably get at it a little early. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Where are my manners? I'm James. I'm the representative of the shadow government that put you in power. So uh, I'll be your daily briefer. I'll be going over the news of the day with you, what you're supposed to say, when you're supposed to say it, how you're supposed to deliver it, all of that type of thing. Uh, Occasionally, we'll go over the news that will happen next week, but uh, but sometimes we leave it as a bit of a surprise for you, try to get a real reaction from you, you know. I'm sure you know how all of that works, but... Today, as I say, is going to be a pretty intensive briefing, so I thought we'd get at it a little bit early. They were going to go over the most important thing about your entire time in office, and of course I should congratulate you on your uh, <laughs> election. What did we tell you? The Electomatic 3000 is a thing of beauty, and that whole winning the, the popular vote by 66.6%, <laughs> that was my idea. I know, I know. I, it's a bit cheeky, but if they ever called us out on it, we'll just try it out some skeptic to talk about pattern recognition. It's fine. But that's exactly what we're going to be talking about today, Mr. President. How do we do it? How do we make it so blatant that we're sitting here pulling the strings of people like you, the little puppets and minions, and yet they don't come after us. They don't care. They, they don't even try to come after us, and the people who do are denigrated and cast out of society. It's a pretty amazing system, as I'm sure you've had the chance to observe from the outside there. I mean, I know, you're not the brightest bulb in the box, and uh, you're really only here for your photogenicity and your thousand-watt smile and your nicely coiffed hair and, and your trip to Cambodia a few years ago. Don't worry, Mr. President, that's our little secret. But, uh, but I guess we should try to bring you up to speed on what this is actually about and how we're actually running things, just so you have an idea. Don't worry, we won't get too much into the specifics. I mean, that's, that's, that's the stuff for the experts to worry about. You don't worry your pretty little head about that, but you should have an idea of the overview, at the very least. I mean, we've been studying this for centuries upon centuries. Surely you know that the human species is the most studied form of life on this planet by far. I mean, even most of the animal experiments we do are really just about finding out about human behavior at the end of the day, aren't they? So we have this down to a science, and it's pretty easy, actually. When you start to look at it, we don't even have to do that much. All we have to do is implant a few ideas, control a few conditions, And people do it to themselves. I know, it's crazy, it's crazy. But you can make people put the shackles on their own neck, around their own wrists, around their own ankles, and march obediently in line behind you. Sounds crazy, but it isn't. And you see it every single day, Mr. President. You've seen it your whole life, but you just didn't even know it was happening. You saw it from the time you were a little child, and we made you make a pledge to something that doesn't even exist.
The original pledge began with a military salute that was then extended out toward the flag. In practice, the second gesture was performed palm down. The pledge was written in 1892 by Francis Bellamy. Francis was the cousin to Edward Bellamy, author of an international bestseller that launched the nationalism movement. Edward's book was translated into every major language, including German. Francis and Edward were both self-proclaimed socialists in the nationalism movement, and they promoted military socialism. The Bellamy's wanted government to take over all schools. Now come and get your riddle on. I pledge allegiance to the flag and the piece of paper that says that I'm obliged to accept your authority. <laughs> it's just amazing that people fall for this stuff. But they do. And, you know, I mean, they're trained from children to accept it. So, I mean, how would anyone ever actually think to go outside of that system? It's pretty basic stuff, but it has a pretty powerful effect. But I know what you're thinking, because there's always people who step outside the bounds, that color outside the lines, that want to get around and want to try to test authority. Of course, those are pe people who exist. But don't worry, of course we have that covered too. 99% of the population can be kept in check by people in funny costumes. I know, it sounds absurd, but it's true. Would you obey this man? He's Charlie, our actor, dressed to look like he's in charge, though he's in charge of nothing except a bogus uniform. We've brought him to Edmonton in North London, to the shopping centre, to find out exactly how obedient people are. Excuse me, I'm sorry, could I just stop you? You're about to pass between me and the, and the red bench. Could I just ask you to go the other side? Thanks. That's great. Oh, and just be on the apple, it'd be great. Oh, oh. Thanks very much, madam. These slabs, they can... I couldn't just ask you to knock it in down for me. You're probably heavier than I am. Can you give it a good old jump? Yeah, actually, let me move that way. Can you just jump, please? Yeah, no, two-footed, probably, best. I couldn't just ask you to litter, could I? To what, sir? To litter. Yeah. Yeah, could I... Have you got anything you could possibly quickly litter? Um, do you want to... Do you use that? It's probably all right. Yeah, could you just listen for me, please, sir? Just twice would be great. Kick it away, otherwise it won't... That's it. Give it a kick. Couldn't ask you just to pop that in your other hand, could I? Thanks, that's excellent. Could I ask you to lead with your left? 
Yes. Um, and just slowly, really, basically. It's a simple experiment, but amazingly, it works. Out of uniform, though, it's a different story. Oh, sir, could I just ask you to switch bags with your hands? Just, just... You couldn't just go and just touch that brick? No? But with the uniform, 70% of people follow Charlie's bizarre instructions to the letter. Oh, fine. Give it one more, actually. The wind's a bit weak. That's it. You've got my dental records here. That's proof enough that this is quality sweet cloth. Bit harder, please, sir. He's in uniform. Stop the bag. So they obey. Oh yes, I know all about how this works, so that's why you're wearing that suit with a little noose around your neck and I'm sitting here in comfortable clothes because I don't need to impress you, Mr. President. But uh, I'll just let you ponder that one if you can get that through your thick little head. <laughs> it's, again, pretty amazing what you can do with just some pieces of cloth and some funny colored fabrics, but hey, again, it works. So why why bother with uh, changing a thing that's uh, that's working so well for us? And it's been working for a very long time. And again, we're refining it all the time. The little black wraiths of death that now parade around the streets claiming to serve and protect. <laughs> again, amazing. Some words and some pieces of fabric apparently get a lot of people to step in line. But again... This is all the outside authority, the authority from above, the pledging to the flag, all of this kind of stuff. It's much, 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 much easier than that. We don't need all that outside authority. The most effective authority that exists, the one that controls so many people, is in their own minds, Mr. President. Do you understand this? It's in their own minds. They do it to themselves. <laughs> they keep each other in line. Why? Because we take any difference, any difference between any segment of the population, we magnify it, we push it, we talk about it, we, we focus in on it in our media presentations. Everything we do, we focus, we drill home the fact that these differences exist and you have to fight with this person and that person's fighting with the other person and it's a melee, every man for himself, every man for himself, every woman for herself, every person stratified, categorized, cut into 15 different identities, and that's what we get them to focus on. Don't focus on the people who own the banking system. Don't focus on the people who are running the military. Don't focus on the people who are making the political decisions. Why on earth would you do that when you can focus on each other? Your neighbor is the source of all your problems. And hey, a house divided, blah, blah, blah. I'm sure you know all that stuff. Again, it's so easy. We could teach this to children. And we do. It might be interesting to judge people today by the color of their eyes. Would you like to try this? Yeah! Sounds like fun, doesn't it? Since I'm the teacher and I have blue eyes, I think maybe the blue-eyed people should be on top the first day. I mean, the blue-eyed people are the better people in this room. Oh, yes, they are. Blue-eyed people are smarter than brown-eyed people. My dad isn't that stupid. Is your dad brown-eyed? Yeah. One day you came to school and you told us that he kicked you. He did. Do you think a blue-eyed father would kick his son? 
people do not get to use the drinking fountain. You'll have to use the paper cups. You brown-eyed people are not to play with the blue-eyed people on the playground because you are not as good as blue-eyed people. Well, the brown-eyed people in this room today are going to wear collars so that we can tell from a distance what color your eyes are. On page 127. 127. Is everyone ready? Everyone but Laurie. Ready, Laurie? Brown-eyed. She's a brown-eyed. You'll begin to notice today that we spend a great deal of time waiting for brown-eyed people. The yardstick's gone. Well, okay. I don't see the yardstick, do you? It's probably over there. Hey, Mrs. Lake, you better keep that on your desk so if the um, brown people... Brown-eyed people get out of hand. Oh, you think if the brown-eyed people get out of hand, that would be the thing to use? Who goes first to lunch? Blue the blue-eyed people. No brown-eyed people go back for seconds. Blue-eyed people may go back for seconds. Brown-eyed people do not. Brown-eyed. Don't you know? They're not smart. Is that the only reason? It might take too much. Okay, quietly. And it seemed like when we were down on the bottom, everything bad was happening to us. The way they treated you, you felt like you didn't even want to try to do anything. It seemed like Mrs. Elliott was taking our best friends away from us. What happened at recess? Were two of you boys fighting? Yeah. yeah. Russell and John were. Russell. What happened, John? Russell called me names and I hit him. Hit him in the gut. What did he call you? Brown eyes. Did you call him brown eyes? They always call us that. Yeah. And all of the um, yeah. boys call us that. What's wrong with being called brown-eyed? It means that we're stupider. Well, not that. Yeah. Oh, that's just the same way as other people call uh, black people niggers. Yeah. Is that the reason you hit him, John? Did it help? Did it stop him? Did it make you feel better inside? Mm -hmm. Make you feel better inside? 
It make you feel better to call him brown eyes? Why do you suppose you call him brown eyes? Right, because he has brown eyes. Is that the only reason? He didn't call him brown eyes yesterday, and he had brown eyes yesterday. Didn't he? Because we just saw Yeah, them. ever since you put those blue things on there. Tease him. Can't tease him. Oh, is this teasing? No. Well, he did it. Were you doing it for fun, to be funny, or were you doing it to be mean? I don't know. Don't ask me. Did anyone laugh at you when you did it? I watched what had been marvelous, cooperative, wonderful, thoughtful children turn into nasty, vicious, discriminating little third graders in a space of 15 minutes. <laughs> it's so brilliant. They fight with each other more than they even think about us. They never even think to come after us. They're too busy fighting with each other all the time over everything. They hate each other. They'll tear each other down all day long. They'll tear each other down in the face of the destruction of everything they've ever cared about in their life because it's always their neighbor's fault. It's never, never the people at the top of the pyramid. Oh, it's so funny. It's so easy. It's so simple. We train them from this, from the time they're children, and by the time they're adults, it's so internalized. It's so ingrained. It's so much a part of their nature. It cannot be taken out ever by anything. People will fight, die, cling to these differences that they are so convinced are the motivating things behind everything going on in the world. And they don't care if people come along and try to tell them about us. <laughs> they don't even care. They'll just dismiss it because we've got some good code words ingrained in their minds to get them off of that topic and back to squabbling with their neighbors. It's so simple. And here's the best part. All we have to do is create minor differences in the group so that one is in a relatively better position of slavery than another, and they will love us. They will cherish us. They will fight and die and defend us, whether they even know it or not. Back during slavery, when black people like me talked to the slave, they didn't kill him. They'd send some old house negro along behind him to undo what he said. You have to read the history of slavery to understand this. There were two kinds of negroes. There was that old house negro and the field negro. And the house negro always looked out for his master. When the field negroes got too much out of line, he held them back in check. He put them back on the plantation. The house negro could afford to do that because he lived better than the field negro. He ate better, he dressed better, and he lived in a better house. He lived right up next to his master in the attic or the basement. He ate the same food his master ate and wore his same clothes. And he could talk just like his master. master. Good diction. And he loved his master more than his master loved himself. That's why he didn't want his master hurt. If the master got sick, he'd say, what's the matter, boss? We sick. When the master's house caught a fire, he'd try and put the fire out. He didn't want his master's house burned. He never wanted his master's property threatened. And he was more defensive of it than the master was. That was the house Negro. 
Oh, oh, sorry about that. I got lost in contemplation there. Sometimes even I have to marvel at this system we've created. It is just so beautiful. It's so amazing how we can so utterly enslave such a large number of people with so few people at the top, so few resources really required for all of this. It's pretty amazing. But hey, we figured it out. They didn't. They suffer. <laughs> oh, it's so beautiful. Well, and of course, it's not just that they'll protect us or defend us because they care about our property because we've given them a tiny share of the scraps from our table like the dogs that they are. It's much beyond that. They love us. Victims of Stockholm Syndrome develop compassion and loyalty towards their captors. The condition follows psychologically traumatizing situations like hostage situations and kidnappings. In fact, Stockholm Syndrome got its name in 1973 when two thieves accosted a bank in Stockholm, Sweden, taking four bank employees hostage. For six days, the prisoners were held in a bank vault, tied to explosives with nooses around their necks. During a rescue attempt, police were shocked when the captives took offense, siding with the captors. Like the Stockholm victims, people who develop this condition endure situations where they're forced to contemplate the reality of severe injury or death. In order for Stockholm Syndrome to develop, a victim must also perceive that her captors have shown occasional kindnesses. Being permitted to eat, not being punished for a so-called transgression, and even being allowed to live are all considered benevolent to someone with Stockholm Syndrome. People with Stockholm experience symptoms similar to post-traumatic stress disorder patients. They may have flashbacks, nightmares, distrust of others, and the inability to enjoy previously pleasurable activities. No one is sure why this phenomenon occurs, but it has been suggested that a victim believes, perhaps unconsciously, that forming an attachment to her captor maximizes her survival. Oddly, Stockholm Syndrome doesn't resolve in tandem with the end of a hostage situation. In the 1973 bank robbing, the freed hostages remained loyal to their captors, even setting up a fund to cover the criminal's legal fees. And the worse we are to them, the more cold and inhospitable, with just once in a while tiny traces of the milk of human kindness thrown in to confuse them, the more they grow to love us. In the 1950s, Harry Harlow conducted a series of famous but controversial experiments on monkeys at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Harlow's findings had substantial implications on our understanding of attachment, but by today's standards, his work would largely be considered unethical. In one of his most famous experiments, Harlow separated young monkeys from their mothers as soon as they were born and stuck them in cages with two fake mothers, a soft one wrapped in cloth that did nothing, and a cold mechanical mother made of wire that nonetheless did provide food. But despite being a cupboard mother, the young baby monkeys didn't bond with her. 
When Harlow or his team scared the baby monkeys with a strange contraption, the monkeys ran and clinged not to their wire source of life-sustaining nourishment, but to the soft, cuddly, and otherwise useless cloth mother. This suggested that warmth and comfort was more important than food when it came to nurturing attachment. Harlow also built a rejecting mother, which used a blast of pressurized air to push baby monkeys away. But instead of finding another source of comfort, these monkeys clung even tighter at all times than monkeys raised without rejecting mothers. And this is what blows my mind. The instinct for warmth and comfort in newborn creatures is so strong, it not only resists attempts to frustrate it, but is paradoxically strengthened by it. Eckerd Hess tested this by using electric shocks to discourage ducklings from following the object they were imprinted on, but it only strengthened the behavior and made them follow more closely than ever before. The fact that a wire mother or a rejecting mother or receiving electric shocks for attaching to your mother would cause more attachment, more love, more dependence, seems like a paradox. But paradoxes can teach us. As Oscar Wilde put it, a paradox is the truth standing on its head to attract attention. And what gets our attention here is the effect uncertainty can have. In 1955, A.E. Fisher conducted an experiment on puppies. His team separated puppies into three groups. Members of the first group were treated kindly every time they approached a researcher. Members of the second group were punished for approaching the researchers. And puppies in the third group were randomly treated kindly or punished. They grew up never knowing what to expect. Their world was not a world of kindness or punishment, but rather one of uncertainty. What's really chilling is that the study found that that group, the third group of puppies, wound up being the most attached to the researchers. The third group loved the researchers the strongest and was the most dependent upon them. Guy Murchie called this the polarity principle. Stress, including the mental stress of uncertainty, is an ingredient in attachment or love, and perhaps even manifestations of hatred, its polar opposite, somehow enhance love. Uncertainty, psychologically, can lead to some of the greatest feelings of attachment and dependence. Just call us Wire Mama and they'll cling to us like monkeys, eh? Well, anyway, that's the gist of it. I'll give you some further reading that you can do in your own time if you feel like it. It doesn't really matter, but why don't we move on to... Sorry? Character? Personal character? Human nature? Basic traits? Are you serious? Oh, no. Really? You still believe in... Oh, man. Oh, well... I don't even know how to respond to that. Well, you know about the Milgram experiment, right? Volunteers were told they were taking part in scientific research to improve memory. Will you open those and tell me which of you is which, please? Teacher. Separated by a screen, the teacher would ask the learner questions in a word game, 
and administer an electric shock when the answer was incorrect. He was told to increase the voltage with each wrong answer. Cloud, horse, rock, house. Answer, wrong. 150 volts. Answer, horse. Oh. Experiment, that's all. Get me out of here. Get me out of here, please. Continue, please. Go right on. I refuse to go on. Let me out. I refuse to go on. The experiment requires you continue, teacher. Please continue. Participants didn't know that the learner was really an actor and the so-called shocks harmless. You're going to get a shock. 180 volts. Oh! I can't stand the pain. Let me out of here. You can't stand it. I'm not going to kill that man, eh? I mean, who's going to take the responsibility if anything happens to that gentleman? I'm responsible for anything that happens here. Continue, please. All right, next one. Slow. Walk, dance, truck, music. Two-thirds of volunteers were prepared to administer a potentially fatal electric shock when encouraged to do so by what they perceived as a legitimate authority figure. In this case, a man in a white coat. 375 volts. I think something's happened to that fellow in there. Of course, everyone knows about the Milgram experiment. That, that cat's long since out of the bag. But here's the part that most people don't know about the Milgram experiment. People could be made to be more or less evil based on the circumstances. The environment determines to a large extent the actions of the people within that situation. And if we control the operational circumstances that people are placed into, if we control the parameters of their situation and their environment, we can dial up the evil and turn down the good, or turn up the good and dial down the evil if you wanted to do that, I guess. It's all situational and... Let's let one of our psychologists explain. Milgram asked 40 psychiatrists individually living in New Haven, Connecticut, probably mostly at, at uh, uh, the, the medical school, what percent of all Americans would go all the way? Describing the study the way I did, perhaps without the drama. Uh, and they said only 1%. They said that's sadistic behavior and only sadists would engage in sadistic behavior. So that's the base rate. Anything above that is significant. They could not be more wrong. Why were they wrong? Their whole training is training in the, only in the dispositional analysis. For psychiatrists, everything is inside your head. Sadism, goodness, good and evil, everything, they don't deal with good and evil, sanity and insanity are in your head. And that meant they ignored all of the situational variables, the lab coat, uh, the roles you're playing, uh, the diffusion of responsibility, I'll be responsible, the rules that are changing. And they ignored all of that to say only 1%. We call that the fundamental attribution error. It's, it's, we do it all the time. Every time when we're trying to understand something where we focus primarily on the person and we ignore the situation, that's called the fundamental attribution error. So here's the data. This is the number of subjects who drop out here. So this is nobody drops out up to, to 28. And this is, this is the amount of shocks. Slight, Nobody drops out to 285 volts. Not a single person quits. And now, okay, now what? Uh, what is it? Uh, uh, four people drop out, three. And now here's that magical 375. If you get that high, the guy's 
unconscious or dead, no one drops out. Everybody goes all the way. Two-thirds, 65% go all the way. Doesn't make sense. Except you've tried everything to get out. Nothing is working. At this point, you say, I shock one, two, three, and I'm out. So giving him three more, he's already dead. He doesn't, what difference does it make? He's not going to feel it. But, but it's the way to exit. So it, it's not only a study in blind obedience to, to authority, which is, which is described. It's a study in not understanding how to exit a, a horrible situation where, where suddenly this just authority is now totally unjust. Uh, so, so, the study, so the result is not 1%, 65%. Well, this is only one study of many that Milgram did. Uh, but people said, you know what? Maybe they really didn't believe he was being shocked. The guy's in the other room. He's yelling. In fact, he wasn't shocked. It was, he was, he was a, an actor. He was a confederate. It was all tape recorded, all the screams and so forth. Well, uh, so what Milgram did is to say, let's look at what happens that, oh, let me put it differently. So two-thirds, thir two this is 60%. In many studies, it's two-thirds. But you could raise it to nine, over 90%, or you could eliminate it. Study 16 is, if you first see somebody like you appear, administer the shock all the way, you do it. On the other hand, what happens if people rebel? Study 5, if you see two people like you while you're waiting, if they, they rebel, you rebel. And in these various other studies, it's, <clears throat> if you have the guy not remote but closer to you, you don't do it. In fact, how do you eliminate it? Study 1, if the guy says, I want to be shocked. You don't do it. You say, that's sick. <laughs> I'm not a sadist. I'm not going to deal with a massacre. You don't, but what this is, it really says what Milgram did is he's really quantifying evil. It's almost as if he's putting a human nature dial, and as you turn it, you can have blind obedience authority go from zero up to over 90%. Are you getting this, Mr. President? Do you understand what we're telling you here? I mean, I know critical thinking and uh, connecting the dots are not exactly your strong points, but I'm sure even you can get it by this point. What, you think this is all happenstance? You think things like Abu Ghraib just happened to pop up? Or you think these riots in Ferguson and all of this are just things that happen because people are the way they are? <laughs> How naive can you possibly be? How ignorant of all of this research can you be? We control the environments. We control the parameters. We control the discourse. We control people's behaviors within that system. It's just that simple. We control the environment, we control the system, we control the people. <laughs> what are they going to do about it anyway? Well, anyway, all of this is just to say, here's your new psychologist general, and it, yes, we're creating that position. We'll just put in some nice rosy discourse about how we need more mental health or something. People will fall for it hook, line, and sinker, as they always do. Here's our psychologist general talking a little bit about what he's going to be doing in your administration, Mr. President. I want to be the psychologist general. I want to manipulate people's desires and thoughts. There's two ways, James, to get people through this, and uh, B.F. Skinner taught us this, systematic, gradual, habituation, uh, conditioning, getting you used to something slowly. It's like, say, breaking a phobia. You know, there's the implosion therapy. Throw up a snake in. Oh, you're afraid of snakes? Ah! You're afraid of drowning? Throw them in the pond. That doesn't work well. What it 
works better is when you gradually approach. Let's talk about a snake. Let's take a look at a picture of a snake. We'll go to the zoo, to a herpetarium. Maybe, and then eventually we'll do that. Something else that works even better. There's two ways. I could say, great, I can put the gizmos on them, but now I want to get really nasty with them. And I want them to basically put themselves in prison. I want them to imprison themselves. I want them to live and I want, them, I want to scare them. I don't want to use, like the great BBC documentary, The Power of Nightmares. I want to get them and frighten them. And whether it's ISIS or ISIL or IS or IQA or Al-Nusra, or, and I'm, gonna, uh, I, I'm going to throw, as soon as they become conversant with one nefarious group of, of uh, barbated you know, beheaders, I'm going to give them another one. I'm going to sh- see how far I can take them. I'm, I'm going to take them to the airport, and I'm going to make them take their shoes off and put their shoes on. And I'm going to corral them. I'm going to blast them with backscatter ionizing radiation cancer tubes. I'm going to, I'm going to manhandle and feel up and, and basically sexually abuse people. See how far they'll go. And I will change the rules. I'll turn the lights on, turn them off. I'm going to, I, just when you think it's daytime, it's not. I'm going to, I'm going to, it's, it's not the Stockholm Syndrome. It's, I'm just going to habituate you. And it's called learned helplessness. Beautiful, isn't it? I think he's the perfect candidate. So there you go. Potato, potato, Bob's your uncle. We're all done. I think that's uh, that's got all of the usual tax cattle herd control in order. And uh, um, I, I, I hesitate to bring this up, but I suppose as your briefer, I suppose I should at least bring this to your attention. Again, you don't have to worry about it. We're working on it behind the scenes. But there are some people who are trying to poke holes in this and trying to bring this to the attention of the people of the outside world and and try to inform them that they're actually slaves to this system. But, uh, well, take a look. Quite simply, a statist is somebody who believes in having a state. Basically, anybody who wants government. Government is the exercise of authority over a people or place. And that is basically the right to rule. It's not just the ability to control other people, because most people have that in one way or another. It's the right. It's the idea that certain people, it's legitimate for them to forcibly control others. Belief in government is a purely faith-based, indoctrinated belief. It doesn't actually make any sense in practical terms or in evidence or in logic. For years, I thought it was a really good analogy to compare government to religion And only a few years ago did I realize it's not an analogy. It is a religion in every way. It has a superhuman deity, government, that has rights that mortals don't. It isn't restricted by the rules that apply to mortals. It issues commands, and if you disobey, you're a sinner and you deserve to be punished. The faithful, the true believers, they have great faith in these bizarre rituals, elections and legislation and appointments, and they dress up and then they say, ta-da, now I represent government. I know I just look like a person, but I don't just have the rights of a person because I represent the magical deity called government. And so I'm allowed to demand your money and boss you around and hurt you if you disobey me. I'm acting on behalf of government and it has commandments called laws. And these laws aren't just the threats of humans. They are decrees from something superhuman. And so all you good people out there 
should bow to this deity. And if you want the world fixed, this is what you pray to. And we give you certain rituals of, of how to pray to it and when you're supposed to pray to it and pray to the God to make the world what you wish it was and to save you from all the uncertainties of reality. The doctrine people are taught is just patently absurd. And a bunch of examples of that are like consent of the governed. There isn't such thing. If it's consent, it's voluntary. If it's being governed, it's not. The actual given excuse is, we have the right to rule you because you decided we did, even if you didn't vote for us, and even if you oppose everything we do to you, and well, they represent us. Okay, they represent us by doing a lot of things that we don't have the right to do. And they represent us by bossing us around and taking our money. Like, I bet if I went to my neighbor and bossed him around and took his money and said, I'm representing you, he would say, what? What a stupid thing to say. To me, the most insane is, we are the government, which you hear everywhere. And I ask somebody, wait, do you really not notice that there's a group of people over there, they issue threats? and they call them laws, and they issue demands for money, and they call it taxes. And if you disobey, they send men with guns to hurt you. Now, are you really incapable of distinguishing between yourself and them? Sick, sick, disturbing stuff, isn't it? The idea of freedom seems to be spreading like the virus that it is, but we will not allow it. Trust me, sir. We have already well implanted the meme that anyone who speaks with this type of rhetoric is clearly one of those vermin conspiracy theorists, one of those vermin liberty lovers. We will stamp them out. Don't worry about it. <sighs> but as I was saying, that is how we control the herd, Mr. President. Any questions? I didn't think so. Well, as I say, I'll give you some further reading. I'll put them on the website so that you can go and take a look later on. But I guess my question to you is, what do you want to do now, Mr. President? is brought to you by you. Your support makes The Corbett Report possible. Sign up for the subscriber newsletter or purchase a DVD at corbettreport.com support.